Hi, everyone. Harry here. No sooner did we finish taping today's Talking Feds Now on the impeachment than a new bombshell came out of a phone call between Kevin McCarthy and then-President Trump that removes any doubt, it would seem, that Trump was pleased with what was going on and, of course, would have meant to encourage it. When McCarthy tells him to call off his dogs, he responds, maybe they just care more about the election results than you do, Kevin, obviously showing his lack of concern for anything other than the uh, marauders trying to do his bidding in there, and a phenomenally expletive-laced discussion ensues. So, never a dull moment, and we'll be watching closely what the Dems try to do with that tomorrow morning. This was after both sides had completed their evidentiary presentations and the questions and answers, but we'll see whether the House managers try to make use of this starting tomorrow. In the meantime, here's our episode. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. After a few weeks of relative calm, we returned to the bristling electricity and angst of living history, a national spectacle of an impeachment trial that relived in microscopic detail the harrowing events of January 6th when an angry mob of domestic terrorists stormed the Capitol and forced the Congress to flee. The impeachment prosecutors from the House brought home the savagery and sheer terror of the insurrection and drew a compelling connection between the months-long campaign of the then-president to, quote, stop the steal and the violence that erupted at the very moment that Congress was certifying the vote. As with its predecessor impeachment trial a year ago, this trial had an odd dual nature. It was on the one hand a constitutional drama of the highest order, serving up a national judgment on former President Trump's conduct. Yet on the other hand, it was a piece of absurdist theater with a predetermined ending, as jurors who had sworn to do impartial justice met with defense lawyers belittled the prosecution as absurd and offensive, and declined even to be present for large portions of the trial. We tape as the lawyers for Trump have just finished their defense, and the senators are posing questions to counsel. The defense, which was a fraction of the allotted 16 hours, focused on the claims that Trump's words were protected by the First Amendment, that they didn't really incite the insurrection, and that they were just part and parcel of the political hurly-burly that Democrats, too, engage in. To discuss the frenetic goings-on of the last week and what it portends for the trial, which will end as soon as tomorrow, and for the future of Donald Trump and Trumpism, we have a fantastic panel of true experts. They are Hakeem Jeffries. Hakeem Jeffries has served as the U.S. Representative for New York's 8th Congressional District since 2013. He is a member of both the House Judiciary Committee and the House Budget Committee, and he was elected chair of the House Democratic Caucus in 2018. Perhaps more importantly, he was one of seven House managers 
presenting the first impeachment case against Donald Trump during the Senate trial in January 2020. He is also mentioned frequently as a likely future Speaker of the House. It's his first time here. Thank you so much for joining us today, Congressman Jeffries. Great to be with you, Harry. And he is joined by Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, co-host of AIS Election Watch, a contributing editor for the National Journal and the Atlantic, and perhaps America's foremost thinker about the Congress. Norm, welcome as always. Thanks, Harry. Good to be with you again. And finally, we welcome back after a stint where he's been AWOL helping the Biden administration with transition issues, Matt Miller, a partner at Vianovo and former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. He's also a justice and security analyst for MSNBC and a prolific writer. Very good to have you back, Matt. Thanks for being here today. Uh, Always good to be here, Harry, especially after a long absence. (laughs) All right. Let's start here. You know, we have a general assessment that the managers basically ran the table and the Trump lawyers who are finishing up their presentation as we tape were ineffective. So let's just probe on that for a moment from both sides. So let me serve up first the question, is there anything in your view that the managers could have done better in their opening arguments in their 16 hours, which they trimmed to about 11 of presentation of evidence? In my view, the managers have done an extraordinary job of presenting clear, compelling, and convincing evidence that but for Donald Trump's irresponsible actions, not over a period of days or weeks, but over a period of months, beginning with the telling of the big lie that Donald Trump actually won the election and that Joe Biden somehow stole the presidency as it relates to the claims of massive voter fraud, but for the telling of that big lie, the January 6th violent attack on the Capitol clearly would not have happened. And I think it was very important for them to center their case in that reality. This didn't start on January 6th. That was the logical culmination of Donald Trump radicalizing millions of Americans, inciting them, inviting them to Washington, and then telling them to march on the Capitol, which resulted in the spilling of American blood and a day that will forever live in infamy. I would add that if I were to pick a couple of words to describe the house manager's presentation, it would be masterful and compelling. Masterful in that the use of video and other evidence that they put up, tweets and other things, including especially the timeline, but also the vivid displays of the mayhem of the horrific violence that gave people who weren't there this sense of how close we came to having a horrific disaster worse than what we saw of more people being killed, of members being assassinated, of the vice president being hung outside the Capitol, of horrible thugs who had been incited saying that Trump had sent them, that they were invited by Trump. All of that, along with, as Hakeem said, the backdrop of it, including the video of the terrible incident in Texas where the bus carrying Biden volunteers was almost run off the road by a bunch of Trump thugs. And what Trump tweeted was, I love Texas, that he's glorified the violence against his political enemies. 
All of that is as strong a case, I think, as you could possibly make. If there were fair jurors here, if we had 100 senators, all of whom took their oath to be impartial seriously, it's a slam dunk. I agree with that. And I, I, I agree with everything uh, both the congressman and, and Norm have said. I will say there is one thing I think they could have done to make a stronger case, but I think it would have been a mistake for them to do so. And that is, I, I think, the the weakest part of the case, and it's only relatively weak in relation to the strength of the other parts of the case, were about Trump's activities inside the White House on the afternoon of the 6th, where they're relying on press reports. You know, the way to to make that piece stronger would have been to spend the last couple of months subpoenaing witnesses and getting them in or subpoenaing them in this trial. That said, I think that would have been a mistake. I think the saying the juice isn't worth the squeeze here is relevant. It would have gotten you where we've seen other congressional investigations land, which is into a long court fight, the delayed impeachment. Even if you tried to subpoena them at trial, you'd, you'd end up with the same kind of fights for witnesses that would be reluctant witnesses anyway and probably wouldn't get you any more in terms of actual votes from senators. So I think the answer to your question is that is one place where there is more evidence they could have gathered. But I think gathering that evidence and it would have been probably not helpful to the overall case. The one caveat I would make to that is I wish they had tried to get the photographs from the White House photographer, the official White House photographer who is there taking pictures all the time. If we had that timeline of him that afternoon, including at the rally itself, where you saw people dancing and laughing, his family and and, uh, his cohort, and then back at the White House, it would have been powerful. And that would have been easier than subpoenaing witnesses, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, as a trial lawyer, that's exactly the kind of nugget, if I were trying the case, that you'd spend your last sort of five minutes on, because it's Well, first, it's second in being compelling only to the video itself, but it's also the piece for which there is no answer. There's no possible good response to what was he doing, delighting. And not only delighting, how about this detail, that this sort of great sociopathic detail? He was perplexed that the people around him weren't also enthused. He couldn't even understand their concern here. I just wanted to add a couple quick points to what the congressman said about the timeline and their sort of longitudinal extension, which I thought also extremely effective for two reasons. First, it really did kind of lay out the lingua franca, if I can be pointy-headed in the way that Raskin wasn't, between the terrorists and Trump. They really played out so we understood exactly what he was saying and how they understood it come the January 6th speech. And then second, what it brought home is we are at the 12th hour. There's no way that a sort of nice political protest would avail him anything here. He needed them to go in and physically impede, to stall or whatever, whatever it would be. So to serve his purposes, they had to do exactly what they would do. That's an important point. And I just want to lift up what the managers did. Basically, they made the point that he's been telling the big lie even prior to the election. The only way he could lose is if the election was stolen. Then he loses and then he claims it was stolen. And then he exhausted every avenue, court after court after court, which is legitimate. But then they reject him over and over and over again. And he doesn't walk away and end the charade at that point. Then he turns to local elected officials, invites state legislative leaders from the battleground states into the Oval Office to try to convince them not to support the seating of electors from their states and to somehow present an alternate slate. That fails, right? His own Department of Justice and FBI and his own attorney general rebuke him. That fails, even though he was clearly trying to push Department of Justice intervention. 
Then he goes to the Georgia Secretary of State. That fails. He even says, find me the number of votes that I need in order to be able to prevail by a single vote. And so they go through everything that fails. And to your point, Harry, the only thing left on January 6th was a violent insurrection. So it was a buildup to halt the peaceful transfer of power by any means necessary, culminating with what took place on the 6th by inciting the violent mob, because that's all the desperate former president had left. I do think you're right. And one of the the big differences between this impeachment and the first one, in the first impeachment, it was very hard, and this is not a criticism of Congressman Jeffries or the rest of that team, it was very hard to communicate to the public who the victims were. You have high constitutional principles at stake, and you have high constitutional principles at stake here. But the tangible victims, it was hard to paint a, a tangible victim in impeachment one. In impeachment two, where I think that they were very successful, is painting who the tangible victims were. And it wasn't just the Constitution. It was Mike Pence. It was potentially all the Republican senators in that room. It was the jurors themselves. And it was in a way, when, it, especially because of the use of the video where you could see senators running out, you could see Mike Pence being escorted out. There is an emotional content to this impeachment because of the nature of the actual violent attack that I thought was incredibly compelling and that they used incredibly well. So true. How about the officer saying, is this America? I've been called the N-word 15 times in the last hour. They painted a panoply of victims. All right. So now to their learned adversaries who have been roundly panned, but also were dealt a pretty weak hand and got on board very late and are kind of fishes out of water here, a personal injury lawyer and a solo practitioner, criminal defense lawyer. Maybe rather than even piling on, let me just say, what would you have done or what what are some of the obvious things that they failed to do? And we've heard the, even before coming on today, the majority of their presentation of evidence. So I think we know what it's about. In what way has it been most glaringly deficient? The first day was just cringeworthy embarrassment, especially from Castro. And it was striking that even most of the Republicans, including John Cornyn and other loyalists to Trump, were harshly critical of what they had done. And apparently Trump was absolutely furious. But frankly, what we've seen today is worse. It's not just embarrassingly bad. It's lying and misleading. David Schoen said today in his presentation that the House managers had been deceptive and hadn't given them video that they were using and sprung it on the senators and the audience, which is simply false. They all had it before the trial began. And, you know, as you were talking, Harry, about the police officers saying, is this America and being called the N-word, Today in his wrap-up, Castro showed a bunch of video of Trump saying, law and order, we're for law and order, we're for law and order, and contrasting it with the other side, with Antifa, basically. Well, I'm old enough to remember when Richard Nixon used law and order as a code term for racism. And you can be sure that when Donald Trump said law and order over and over again, that the crowd that marched on the Capitol and engaged in that violence understood just what he was saying, just as... Today, bizarrely, they tried to do a defense of Trump's statements on Charlottesville. The same thing. And it's been kind of embarrassing because they've used video and repeated it three, four, and five times, saying the word fight, fight, fight all over again as if it's just a commonplace word without any context. It reminded me of it, you know, as somebody who's taught 
in the past. I used to get 20-page term papers that basically were a paragraph repeated over and over and over again. This was a paragraph defense repeated for three hours. And when they couldn't come up with anything else, they replayed the same stupid video. So if you were going to do a law school class on how not to be a lawyer, I think this would be a pretty good uh, case study. Yeah, I agree with exactly what Norm said. And I'd also add that when you can't argue facts, when you can't argue the law, when you don't have any evidence to exonerate your client, who's the defendant, when you've got no basis to justify your actions in the Constitution, what do you do? Well, they've chosen to try to inflame the jury. And so I think that wasn't a script that was written by defense lawyers. That was a script that was written by Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon. And they basically read it. And I think they were trying to create enough space amongst the Fox News conservative entertainment complex watching portion of the United States Senate to give them a basis to acquit Donald Trump by inflaming them with irrelevant information taken out of context, repeated over and over again, and devoid of any connection to the actual constitutional crime, which is the reason why the Senate is sitting in a court of impeachment. I mean, I guess... Alan Dershowitz and Rudy Giuliani wasn't available, so they found this crowd. I mean, nobody was available, right? Everyone was running from him. And then and he fired his other crowd. And they really are. I'm, you know, I've been in trial with other people of that ilk. And it really is when the case is strong against you, you try to just accuse the government or put them on trial. But nevertheless, I would say what they didn't do and should have done is just choose a narrative and stick to it. If there were deliberations here, and that's one of the most important ways, it's not like a trial, right? At the end, you go off and reason together, and there's some chance of a group dynamic arriving at the truth. Here, that won't happen. But the first person who wants to defend Trump should have a sentence to say. I Probably the best one here would have been terrible day and he he was very loose and careless but he didn't actually incite or something like that but a story that they stuck to consistently i was also really impressed and a little surprised that a gambit that raskin played seemed to have worked taking the jurisdictional point off the table it's totally correct that the senate decided it and so they shouldn't be able to buck it but i nevertheless thought that they in one of the many ways that they would sort of ignore their oaths would be to go back to that point, even though it had been decided against them. I disagree a little bit. I think they did choose an argument, and it's an argument that is the most effective argument with that jury, at least the Republican part of the jury. And the argument is that Democrats are terrible and Democrats incite violence. And what about Antifa? And so you can't give a Democrats a win on anything. And voting to convict Donald Trump is giving Democrats a win. And that is the best argument you can make with that jury. So the army's Democrats do it too, or no, they're just, they're our hateful enemies. It, yeah, they are our hateful enemies. We are on a team. They are the other team. And the other team is so terrible that you can't give them a victory on anything. Their presentation was dishonest and it was filled with deceitful whataboutism, but lies and whataboutism are what have kept the Republican Party on side with Donald Trump for four years. The thing that Donald Trump has always been able to do is convince Republicans that you hate Democrats so much, you have to stick with me or they will be in charge. I mean, that, that's and, and I spent a long time thinking that Republicans were just afraid of him, Republican politicians. I think that's part of it. But I think they also really a lot of them really believe that they really believe that you can't let Democrats win anything. And I think that was an argument that played 
pretty well with the jury. And I suspect when you hear Republicans fan out onto cable news and talking to reporters afterwards, you will hear them repeating the arguments that the Trump attorneys made because they believe that. Really? Yeah. Because I was just going to push back and say, maybe that's a subtext, but Cruz or whatever can't go forward and say, we had to do this because Democrats are hateful. I think they have to have something of of some apparent substance to say on cable TV. It will be. They made an effective argument that the kind of language Donald Trump uses is exactly what all Democratic politicians use, and that can't be an incitement of a riot, or else every politician has incited violence. That'll be the argument. I think Matt's correct in terms of the strategic approach that they've taken here, because the reality is the trial should be about who's on team democracy and who's on team insurrection. And if that's how it breaks down, Donald Trump is as guilty as hell based on the facts and the evidence and the arguments that have been made. And I think the defense counsel maybe understands this, or maybe the people who are advising defense counsel understand this. Including the jurors. Right, including the jurors. This is, by the way, great point, Harry, because this is probably what Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, I think those were the three, had to say to them yesterday. Make this about team blue versus team red, because right now you're losing and you're at risk of 67 So I would say a couple of things. First is, you know, when you raised your surprise, Harry, Roy Blunt, a few days ago, when asked about it, said, well, what about all those riots in Portland and Seattle and Antifa? So that's a talking point that they're going to use. I think they're going to cling to this First Amendment argument, although it is absurd on its face. They're going to be looking for things. I also think we're going to be seeing some tryouts of talking points. I saw that John Thune is now saying that maybe he could be open to a censure. They're going to try and have it both ways, although it probably wouldn't go forward anyhow. And of course, it would be a a nothing penalty compared to impeachment and and conviction. But I've known a lot of these people, a lot of these Republican senators over a period of time. Uh, Certainly, some of them are just so tribal that they'll just automatically resonate to that argument. Some are so venal that they'll use any argument that they can to protect their political careers. But the vast majority of them are simply moral cowards. They have no backbone. They have, even if they have worked in the past in some areas to try and make public policy, that's all gone now. And if we say, uh, you know, Congressman Jeffries said, team democracy and team insurrection, hell, most of them are on team insurrection. And even if they know that's wrong, they're too spineless to step out against it because they fear being shunned by their friends and their supporters and their party. It's pathetic. Let's stick with that for a moment. And I'd I'd like to direct in the first instance to the congressman. You had a similar dynamic a year ago. You were going into a biased, cold room and you knew it. So how did you approach, you must have talked a lot about that with your fellow managers. Did you consider look, we just have to do our best. It's all we can do. Or did you think, well, if we're going to lose here, let's try to win to the American public. How did you incorporate the fact that you were going to be trying to persuade jurors who are in the tank and won't be listening to you? That's a great question. I think we went in giving the Senate the benefit of the doubt and saying, you know, they swear an oath as impartial jurors sitting in a court of impeachment. We're going to make the best possible case focused on both them as an audience to try to get to the 67 number or get as many Republicans as we could to vote to convict Donald Trump for corruptly abusing his power in the context of the Trump-Ukraine scandal, while at the same time explaining a reasonably complex case to the American people in as clear-throated a way as possible. 
I think the observation was made earlier, you know, part of the challenge is we didn't have a victimless crime because the victim was the Constitution, our democracy, and free and fair elections, which the president was endeavoring to interfere with. And that's why he targeted Joe Biden and pressure Ukraine to unfairly single him out in a way that would increase Donald Trump's electoral prospects. In many ways, it's a through line to where we are today. And I think Adam Schiff has kind of made that point. This was all part of undermining our free and fair elections. And when that wasn't successful and Joe Biden won, it continued. And it continued with the logical consequence being the bloody insurrection on January 6th. I think toward the end of the first trial, after the senators voted to deny witnesses, we still had to make our case to them and be respectful. But we also realized that we probably needed to elevate our focus and communication on the American people. And we felt like the American people needed to understand why we did what we did. And ultimately, history would need to understand why we did what we did. And Donald Trump's probably been our best ally in that regard now with his subsequent behavior. It is true that all three of these episodes I'm now lumping in the Mueller report are about one thing only, just the ruthlessness in in trying to consolidate or increase power. And Norm, you're the you're the expert on the Senate here. I felt kind of Pollyanna-ish during this this and the last impeachment because, well, first, I think it's very, very important to insist on the difference between law and power here. You've had a lot of people on cable saying, well, that's the rules here, whatever they want. And that's just not right. It's the fact, the brute fact. But as the Supreme Court is always saying, they swear an oath to the Constitution and we expect them to uphold it. I have been, I would say, surprised and certainly taken aback at the casualness of the Republicans' willingness to sort of disregard the oath as if it's just a trivial point. There's not even, and this happened in the first trial as well, starting with McConnell, not a pretense of trying to do impartial justice. I would think there would at least be a pretense. Am I being kind of silly and naive? Did Was it ever thus where the Senate was concerned? No, you're being naive. Yeah. And, you know, I do think one of the people I'm going to be watching here is Jim Lankford on the floor by all the reports. This was a guy who on January 6th may have come closest to being killed of all the members of the Senate. And when the managers were going through with this incredible, disturbing video, by almost every account, he was deeply shaken. Some of his colleagues had to go over to try and comfort him. How you could go through that and not understand the powerful case here that you your life was in danger because of Donald Trump. If Donald Trump hadn't done this, it would not have happened. And if he votes to acquit, that will tell you what you need to know about Republicans in the Senate. Harry, I've been around Congress for 50 years, and over that time, I've worked with a lot of Republicans. And there used to be a large number who you could really look up to as people who had the best values. Even if you didn't agree with their politics, they had what you admire, and they cared about institutions, and they cared about the rule of law, and they cared about the regular order, and they believed in compromise and solving national problems. There isn't hardly a trace element of that anymore. At least in this one, we got a few Republicans who went along. But consider that after the mayhem in the Capitol on the 6th, 
After it settled and they went back that evening to vote, two-thirds of the Republicans in the House after that voted to say the election was rigged. And a sizable number, almost a dozen Republicans in the Senate voted that way. That's all you need to know about them now. And it's, you know, unfortunately, it's not just about one political party. It's about a country that needs parties that are honest and that want to solve problems. And and it's just, if this is an acquittal and we don't get much more than the six votes that we got just a few days ago to move forward with the trial itself, then it's going to be a very disturbing indicator of where we are. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, it seems fitting to talk about the potential criminal liability that the former president can face in the wake of the impeachment trial, whether it end in conviction or acquittal. And we're really happy to have Ann Milgram to do it. Ann is a professor of practice and distinguished scholar in residence at NYU School of Law. She has been a criminal prosecutor in state, local, and federal offices, and she is the former attorney general of the state of New Jersey. She is also a CNN legal analyst, hosts the Cafe Insider podcast with Preet Bharara, and, not least, is the host, along with Juliet Kayyem and Melissa Murray, of the new podcast, Talking Feds, Women at the Table, which brings to the table prominent legal and policy professionals and special guests for a lively and intellectual discussion. So I give you Ann Milgram on former President Trump's potential criminal liability. On January 6th, 2021, violent insurrectionists stormed the United States Capitol in an unprecedented attempt to prevent or delay the certification of Joe Biden as president. Just one week later, on January 13th, the House of Representatives impeached Trump under a sole charge, incitement of insurrection. Much of the trial hinges on the definition of this term. What does incitement mean? Simply put, in criminal law, incitement is the act of persuading another person to commit a crime. However, The vagueness of this term has resulted in the Supreme Court imposing strict constitutional limits on lawsuits or prosecutions regarding insurrection as a protection of freedom of speech. Restrictions on speech have a checkered history, including several notorious uses of the sedition statute to suppress valid political speech. In a case called Brandenburg v. Ohio, the Supreme Court has imposed a test required by the First Amendment that incendiary speech can be criminalized only if it was, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and was likely to incite or produce such action. So, in order to charge him, a government attorney will need to determine that Trump's speech crossed the line to inciting imminent lawless action. That's a factual determination that can only be made from careful consideration of all the evidence, including Trump's initial call to the rioters to come to D.C. for the rally. This is not the first time Trump has been charged with incitement of insurrection. Protesters at a Trump campaign rally sued Trump for incitement after he told the crowd to, quote, get him out of here, resulting in violence towards the protesters. Trump won the lawsuit, 
with the judge concluding that he was protected by the First Amendment. In the opening days of the impeachment trial, Democrats had made two key arguments differentiating the current case against Trump with the 2016 case. The first concerns the difference between individual and public power. While certain statements may be acceptable coming from a private citizen, when coming from a public official, they may constitute abuses of official power. The second argument is related to the issue of imminent lawless action. Prosecutors argue that the actions of January 6th were not incited on January 6th alone, but instead the culmination of a calculated campaign by Trump to retain power and instill distrust in the democratic system. For Talking Feds, I'm Ann Milgram. Thank you very much, Ann. You can find the latest episode of Women at the Table anywhere you get podcasts, and you can also follow it on Twitter at W-A-T-T underscore T-F. Uh, this episode features an interview with Julie Cohen and Betsy West, the documentary filmmakers who made the great film on Ruth Ginsburg, on their new film, which just premiered at Sundance. My name is Polly Murray, perhaps the most important civil rights figure that you have never heard of. So picking up where we were just before Anne's presentation, let's think about it then, completely from a Machiavellian standpoint. You had Nikki Haley come out today and eat a lot of crow, saying not only was he wrong here, but that they had been wrong all these many years to follow him. So she's made a political calculation to divorce herself from the Trumpism line, and There certainly seems to be an argument that it would be in the party's interest to somewhat loosen the chokehold he has on their neck. So what is their calculation? Is it just sort of a collective action problem that individual by individual, they're scared to be the first person alphabetically to vote for conviction and that will inspire his revenge? It strikes me somebody's wrong and somebody's right. But it also strikes me that one, the one thing, if anything, Ted Cruz knows is how to calculate his political self-interest. So what are they exactly thinking here? I think ultimately it's about the base of their party. And it's not just about Donald Trump. It's that Donald Trump is the perfect representation of the base of the Republican Party. And even if they, by voting to convict, made him go away in the sense that he wouldn't be able to run again, They're not going to make his voters go away. Remember, the Republican Party base was demanding all sorts of crazy behavior by their elected officials the eight years that Barack Obama was president before Donald Trump came onto the scene. I mean, he was on the scene doing birtherism and and whatnot, but he wasn't wasn't the force that he obviously became when he started to run for president. So it is a little bit of a collective action problem in that it's a long way. You know, I, I, I keep thinking, you know, you might get to 55 votes, but you're not going to get any more than that without getting all the way to 67, right? If they if they, they all have to, to join together. And I think the reason they aren't willing to join together to do it is because you get rid of him and you solve one problem, but you, they think they create a bigger problem for themselves. I, I have always thought they're misreading it, but... You have thought they're misreading it, Matt. You, you think that's a miscalculation. I have always thought they needed to find a chance to take Trump out. And that as long as they didn't take Trump out, they couldn't even begin to fix their party and stop being afraid of their own voters. But they have never, they have, I mean, it's not an obvious statement. They have never seen it that way or never been willing to act or never been able to muster the collective will to move all together. Admittedly, it's hard. 
this is the best chance they're ever going to have, right? Yeah, it's and admit, it's, uh, it's hard because the minute you do it, you have opportunists like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley who will be banging on you and trying to, to wave the bloody shirt. Yeah, I think they're definitively afraid of their own voters, you know, as Matt has indicated. And I think this is about political courage versus cowardice. You do have a handful of Republicans, foremost among them, in my view, Liz Cheney, you know, who showed a lot of principled courage. We disagree on 90 percent of issues as it relates to public policy, but she's been a stand up person in my regard with respect to this issue of insurrection and integrity of our free and fair elections and doing the right thing from beginning to end for the most part. But I think that the vote with respect to Liz Cheney being able to retain her chairpersonship of the Republican conference tells us a lot. About two thirds of the Republicans voted to retain her. One third or so voted to throw her out. It was almost the exact inverse of the number of Republicans who voted to wrongfully object to the certification of Joe Biden. What explains the two? Norm, a great oracle of Congress, I think may suggest correctly, it's the secret ballot. There was some truth that came out in the secret ballot. They know Liz Cheney was correct, and they could actually validate her when their names weren't attached to the actual vote in much larger numbers. But if it's in public, they're going to play to Donald Trump, Trumpism and his base because they are afraid of him and afraid of the voters that he has radicalized and were demanding crazy things, as Matt said, for a long time during Barack Obama's presidency. And it's gotten worse over the last four years. So one of the things we should look out for is polls in the next couple of days. We've already seen that there was at least some decline in favorability for the Republican Party, about 10 points. How much of that is coming from Republicans per se, I'm not entirely sure. What we also know is that at this point, roughly 70% of Republicans say they're with Donald Trump. And we also know that 30% of those who identify as Republicans believe that Trump has been fighting a global child sexual predator ring. In other words, 30% of them buy into QAnon. Well, as Matt said, that's the base now. And I think there's some physical fear for some of them. There's a fear that if you vote against Trump, you and your family might be threatened. Look at what happened to Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. And of course, Trump playing that one up to try and build that fear that's even greater. But I'm not even sure if there were a secret ballot vote in the Senate on this, that they would get enough votes to convict because they would be fearful that they would be pushed over and over again to say how they voted and it would not work very much to their advantage. You know, the other thing, we haven't talked much about this. All of these horrific things that Trump has done to work with the Russians, to pressure the Ukrainians, to stand with dictators, to turn a blind eye to the murder of Khashoggi, put all of that together with the fact that his administration is the worst in terms of implementing public policy in the history of the country. Lancet says, the uh, medical journal, 200,000 Americans died because of the malfeasance of the Trump administration. Look at the child separation policies. Look at what they've done with student loans, with private universities. Look at all of the areas of public policy and public life that they've screwed up because they didn't care about governance. And that's what's become of this party. And I think the they did in the Senate no oversight of any of these outrageous things because they look at the short term. And the short term was if we do anything that goes after Trump, that's going to hurt us now without recognizing that what they're doing is deep, deep long-term damage to uh, their own party. And hurt us sort of 
individually. I mean, this is I, you almost want to chart this out in game theory terms because what it means is they are in complete thrall. Now, it's it's not as if say as it might have been with Nixon embracing what you think is a winning strategy nationally. It's just because in the first instance they're petrified that he can demand or announce a primary challenge to them. And they that's what his concrete power seems to be. But if you indulge that fair fear, of course, you're consigning the Republican Party. On the other hand, you have to imagine that of these 70%, there's some kind of cleavage with those who really saw the viciousness and the sort of savage face of the base from the video itself and wonder if they're all going to stay loyal and in military rank, as it were. All right, let's explore this a little bit in the context of Mitch McConnell. He has interestingly left a little room, it seems to me, to vote to convict. He's even given the probably false projection that he's letting his members do whatever they want. But still, it's it seems like he hasn't yet come to ground. I would never bet on his voting to convict, of course. But there if he were to decide, you know, from the party's point of view, it's a better thing. Maybe he brings a half dozen with him. Just what, what do you think is going on in his mind now? I think he put that out early to give his caucus some space to come to a decision, you know, to let his caucus really think about it and take a moment. Think McConnell probably believes that the right thing to do politically and substantively, but more importantly for him politically, would be to remove Donald Trump from the possibility of running for office again. But I don't think he'll vote that way because I don't think the way it's developed politically is that 16 of his colleagues are going to go along with him. And I suspect he'll end up voting no because he will understand that Mitch McConnell being the 56th or 57th vote is just going to make life politically difficult for the 43 or 44 Republicans who didn't vote to convict because they'll constantly be compared to him. He will make his decision on one thing and one thing only, and that's what he thinks is the best vote for the Senate Republican conference. And my guess is he decides that if they can't get to 67, he's a no. I mean, I really agree with that, but it's noteworthy because he is, I think, one of the few thinking of the conference as a whole, that's what promotes his self-interest, the caucus as a whole, and everyone else is more thinking, I think, in individual terms. The one thing you can say about Mitch McConnell is that he will take no action that doesn't meet the test of his own self-interest and that that he sees of the power that he has in the Senate. What he's looking at now, he's not going to say that his number one goal is to make Joe Biden a one-term president. What he is going to say is his number one goal is to get back the majority in the Senate. And so he's looking at the 20 Republican seats that are up, 17 incumbents running, three so far who've retired. And he's trying to calibrate this because he needs to keep some enthusiasm from that base, but he also can't suffer the same fate that they did in 2018, where suburban college-educated Republicans and independents left in droves to vote for Democrats. So I think that's why he's calibrating this. My guess is that only if polls show that support for Trump is down to 50 percent among Republicans would he consider voting to convict and then probably try to get some of his Republicans to go along. But he's going to talk to each of them and say, tell me, you know, your state, what's going to work best for you and I'll protect you there. That's what's on his mind. I agree. And I also think that he's probably caught between the rabid Republican base and some of his donors, Mm. institutional donors who at least for the moment, have walked away from the insurrectionalists and from Trump. 
perhaps because of self-interest in terms of not wanting their corporate brands to be tarnished by the blood that is dripping from Donald Trump and all those who have embraced his incitement of the insurrection. Now, maybe that changes and maybe you know, the donors who have indicated, well, we're not going to support those who have supported the insurrection begin to come back home. That remains to be seen. I think some of the space that he's attempted to create may, in fact, relate to that dynamic. I think part of him probably does detest. You know, he's an institutionalist to some degree, to some degree. I gave a surprisingly strong speech on the Senate floor and did draw a line in the sand as it related to certifying Joe Biden's election and opposing the big lie, better late than never. And so maybe this is a schizophrenic thing and it's just not clear. But at the end of the day, I think as Norm indicated, it's all going to be about what is the best pathway for him to get the majority back in 2022. So we all seem to be of one mind that it, it's an overwhelming, compelling case. And we all seem to be of one mind that it's going to be an acquittal. So putting those two together, what are the consequences going forward? Is there a way in which the acquittal backfires a little bit against the former president by keeping the issue alive and having a social desire for him to, to say, be criminally indicted or otherwise face the music? Does it, in fact, does he take it as an unadulterated victory and a, a national endorsement that what he did, in his words, is totally appropriate? And we can just expect it again, as Ted Lieu spoke about. What what implications for Trump and Trumpism will this acquittal, if it happens, have? I think there may be a backlash in the same way that there was a backlash to OJ's acquittal. OJ was viewed by large numbers of the American people as having been guilty. He got off. And then he was flaunting it in our faces, mm -hmm. which is probably what made it worse for him in terms of how the American people uh, received it. And Trump can't help himself if he's acquitted by the Senate. He's going to flaunt it. He's going to take it as vindication. But it's very different than the first impeachment trial where the senators argued in large measure, will give the American people a chance to weigh in. The American people have actually weighed in. You lost, artificially tried to hold on to power and became the framers of the Constitution's worst nightmare. They knew Donald Trump. He didn't know them, but they knew him. I think Jamie Raskin pointed this out. They were concerned with, you know, with a demagogue gets elected by manipulating the passions of the people, make America great again. This is your last chance, folks. Build the wall. Who over the course of the four years in office becomes a tyrant or attempts to. What do you guys, uh, do, do you concur? What about sort of implications of the acquittal? Well, here's what I would say. First, I am really glad they went forward with this, even with an acquittal. I think it sets a marker. You have to set a marker. You cannot let a president who's done the worst job trying to destroy our democracy of any in history just go off into the sunset, even if there are prosecutions for unrelated crimes in New York and maybe even for a related crime in Georgia. And I was so gratified that the House managers set down this powerful case which will be there for millions of Americans who didn't see everything that was going on, who now have the case of, of the horrific behavior and what he did and how close he came to destroying everything. So I'm happy with that. I think if the House managers manage to get, say, 58 senators, eight Republicans, and it's possible there'll be two more, then I think it's a stain on him, but it also adds to the impetus to 
Cy Vance and the other officials in New York to go after him for his financial crimes. And it may add to the impetus for the Fulton County prosecutors to go after him for what he did with Raffensperger and in other ways to try and steal the election there. And if those things happen, we're okay. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is I still think there's a possibility of coming back to the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and what would only take a majority vote that would block him from running for office again, because it's very explicit. Anybody who promotes insurrection or or incitement to overthrow the government can't run for uh, office of public trust. I think that acquittal will be forgotten very quickly. And I think the country has a way of forgetting former presidents and former politicians. If anyone can break that mold, it will be Trump, who has a way of Mm -hmm. inserting himself into everything, though it's going to be much harder for him to do that without his Twitter platform, without Facebook. Absent him running again, which we won't see for, you know, we wouldn't see for for a couple of years, I think. I think there is going to be an interest in the Republican Party to, on the short term, forget that Donald Trump exists, not because he's just a political liability to him, but because there's an interest in the Republican Party facing unified Democratic control to just point all of their you know, metaphorical weapons at Joe Biden and, and be attacking the Democratic administration. And I think you know, in three months, four months, six months, I don't know that we're going to be talking about Donald Trump very much. And I think that's true whether he's acquitted or convicted. And I think that's, you know, that's likely to be just the, the the nature of how Washington works. All right. We just have time for our last segment of five words or fewer. Our question today comes from Polly Garfield, who asks, if you were a senator who now could ask either set of lawyers a question, what question would it be and to whom? I would ask the question of Trump lawyers, violent insurrection is this America? I would also ask the Trump lawyers a question, and it would be, did Trump deploy the guard? And I'm going to be more flip. How are you not disbarred? (laughs) And I'm going with, to the Trump lawyers also, why was Trump delighted? Thank you very much to Matt, Norm, and Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon.com slash TalkingFeds, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters as well as ad-free episodes. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Lopatin. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Matt McArdle. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to former New Jersey Attorney General Anne Milgram of Women at the Table fame for explaining the former president's potential criminal liability. 
Our gratitude, as always, goes out to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. And a big shout out to the Honorable David Trone for helping us with this week's episode. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.